Good morning. We are now in week three of meeting online due uh, to the outbreak of the coronavirus. And as we've adjusted to this new reality, we as a church have really tried to do two things. First, we've tried to move all of our services online like so many churches around the nation have done. Uh, and I'm so, I want to say a shout out to Pastor Chris, and I'm so grateful for him and all the work he's done. And uh, that first week when the virus hit, we were still planning on having a church service in person as, as late as Saturday night. And the New York State declared a state of emergency. And so Saturday night, Chris scrambled and we got our, we got our uh, service streaming online right away. And every week he's made improvements. Every week he's worked hard to improve it. It's made it so all I have to do is come up and say words. And that's been such a blessing to me. The second thing we've tried to do as a staff is we are in the process and we're closing in on finishing it. And many of you have probably heard from a staff member already is we're calling every single person in our church uh, who's a member or a regular attender. And for those of you who do not receive a call in the next week and would like to speak with one of us, we would love to get in touch with you. There may be some of you who haven't filled out a welcome or guest card, or maybe you just slipped through our database and we don't connect with you. And if that's the case, please call me if you get the, the email communications. My cell phone number is on there. It's 585-267-0337. And my email is bill at lifespringcc.com. If we can help you in any way, we would love to do so. Um, I wonder if my wife is watching that and wondering if I should have given my cell phone out on live, uh, whatever this is, TV, I don't know. But um, there it is. We want to help you. And as we've been making those calls, we've identified three ways that we can really help you. The first is we can help you. We have a team of people who are willing to help you run errands and pick up stuff. If you find yourself in a position where uh, you don't have family or friends who can get stuff for you, I have a team of people who are willing to do this. But to be honest, the need for this has been pretty low so far. So far, I think I've made 67 calls. I've talked to 55 different family households, and I don't have a single person that needs anything picked up. I've probably talked to 20 or 25 people who are willing to pick things up, and I don't have a single person that needs something picked up, you see? Uh, So that need is fairly low. The second way that we're trying to assess needs and help people is through helping us deal with loneliness and stay connected. Uh, After our initial round of calls are done, we are going to set up uh, a team of people who volunteered, and we probably have at least 50 or 60 people who've said that they would be willing to make phone calls. And we are going to develop a system where each person gets a couple phone calls every week, and you're going to hear from somebody in the church every single week and get to know each other. My prayer and hope and my vision for this at the end of this, when we all meet together again in person, is that there will be people who have connected on the phone and gotten to know each other that way that maybe never had connected meaningfully in a worship service, maybe people who had never even seen each other face to face. And the third way we can help you is financially. Um, we've announced it in our email communications, and I talked about it last week in a Sunday morning sermon. We have what's called a Good Samaritan Fund, which has got a decent amount of money in, and people have been faithful in supporting this fund and giving to it. And we're asking those who are able, and there's some of you who aren't, and you should not feel any guilt if you've lost your job, if you cannot give at this time, and if you cannot give to this fund. We should not feel guilt about what we can't do, but we, and we should never allow what we can't do to stop us from what we can do. And there are times outside of our control when we need help from other people. And as a staff, as we're making these calls and assessing where people are, the staff is going to be proactive in making recommendations to the elders for disbursements 
uh, to people who have been affected by this and can no longer work. And we are going to proactively seek those people out. And do not feel guilty to ask for help. And do not feel guilty if you receive something from us. Because we are here to help you in the very philosophy and nature of Acts chapter 2 that we looked at last week. Where everybody shared as they had the ability so that nobody went without and needs were met within the church community. It occurs to me, however, as we're kind of responding to this crisis in these ways, as we move online our services, and as we respond and try to connect with people over the phone and really assess where the needs are in our church, um, it occurs to me, too, that we're kind of going through this natural progression as we deal with this new reality. In week one, when I came up to speak, I talked about having trust over fear, And how it's so important that we place trust in the gaps of our understanding and that we not give in to fear. Last week, we looked at the reality that we overcome crisis through self-giving love. And we self-give in times of crisis as Christians because Christ was self-giving to us. And we don't turn inward into self-concern. This week, as we kind of go through the natural progression of dealing with this new reality, I want to take one Sunday morning to deal with the question, why? The question, why? Why has this happened? You know, isn't it always this way? If something cataclysmic happens, you start out and you're just like in shock and then you try to figure it out and you're starting to deal with what does this mean? How am I going to survive? And you're in survival mode. But as your new routines and reality starts to be established, you start to become philosophical, right? You're no longer in survival mode. Now you kind of have an idea of what you need to do to survive or whether you will uh, and you will. You're starting now to ask the question, why? Why does this happen? Not just why does the coronavirus happen. That's not the only reason, the only question I'm addressing this morning. I'm not just addressing the specific thing we have now, why the coronavirus. I want to address the question, why does anything evil happen? Why the coronavirus? Why uh, war Why earthquakes? Why hurricanes? Why pandemics? These are all on the universal scale, aren't they? But we could move internally. We could move personally. And we could say, why miscarriage? And why is there cancer? And why is there rape? And why is there unemployment? And why is there, you know, personal poverty? Why? Why? There are some assumptions that Christians widely hold as they try to figure out the question why, that are categorically wrong and are not helpful to you or to anyone else, and yet are wildly held within the Christian community. There are certain things uh, that we believe that have no basis in the nature of God as has been revealed to us in Scripture, but yet people believe these things almost as if they're axiomatic, that they don't need to be defended. Um, in theology, in seminary, in Bible college, I was always taught that this realm of theology is called folk theology. (laughs) It's not biblical or scriptural or based in the nature of God. It's just based on things that we assume to be true, and then we base other things on these assumptions, and they lead us in all kinds of destructive ways, right? I'll give you some examples that don't have to do with difficulty. How many people believe that if you do what is right, you will be blessed, right? If I do my devotions this morning, uh, I'll make the big sale, right? 
How many people believe that if I do my devotions this morning, the presence of God will feel so dear and close to me? I certainly hope that's the case for you, but there's nowhere in Scripture it's promised that your emotional state will always be awesome if you do the right things. To have this proved, just read any of the Psalms practically, yes? But there is an area of folk theology that people believe Wild, wildly, I, was, I meant widely, but wildly is uh, applicable too, that people believe widely in the Christian tradition that belongs to folk theology as it pertains to dealing with difficulty in the judgment of God. Assumptions that are wrong. Assumptions that will lead you in a direction that will take you towards a place that is not loving and is not helpful to anyone. And I just want to deal with one and really delve into it this morning. And the assumption that I want to work you through this morning is the assumption that whenever difficulty comes to us, whenever cataclysm, whether that's universal in scope or individual in nature, that this cataclysm or this thing that is happening to me personally, must be a result of God's judgment on my life, right? God's judgment on my life. When difficulty strikes, it must be a sign of judgment. That statement belongs in the area of folk theology. It is not rooted in the pages of scripture. It is not rooted in the nature of God. It is not true. Now, What I want you to hear this morning is when difficulty happens, do not assume that God is judging you. Do not assume that God is judging us. Do not assume. Do not assume. The history of the world and of the church is full of examples of doomsday preachers that interpreted the signs of the times and who were always wrong. (laughs) The latest cataclysmic event has always been by certain groups in the Christian realm, and they're not just confined to one area or one denomination. Every denomination has messed up in this area. Preachers that proclaim, because this has happened, the end of the world must be near. Because this has happened, God will no longer put up with this particular sin anymore, and so he has brought this. When the defeat of the Roman Empire happened, Near the end of the 5th century, uh, the Christians and the preachers of that time were saying, surely God must be judging the sins and the indulgences of the Roman Empire. And so St. Augustine wrote the city of God to confront that reality and teach against it. In the Hundred Years' War that began in uh, the 1350s, the English and the French preachers on both sides were proclaiming, We are fighting brother against brother and nation against nation. And so the prophecies of Matthew and Revelation must be coming to fruition and the end is near. During the time uh, of the great fire of London in 1666, do you hear that number? 1666. The preachers of London proclaimed that surely the end has come and God has brought fire because the English and the Uh, the elite of London are in sin. When Y2K came, came, people were freaking out. When Hurricane Katrina hit, there there were voices telling us it's because of racism and now God has brought judgment. And now, with the coronavirus, we hear these same kind of voices. These proclamations are based 
on wrong-held beliefs that are wild, widely held, widely held, when, that tell us that God is judging us. And the proclaimer of judgment says that he knows or she knows when and why. I want to tell you that this is incredibly dangerous and it is never helpful. Why is this? I want to address the judgment of God. And I want to talk to you about when it happens, and I want to talk to you about why it happens. Um, I'm not telling you this morning that God never judges us. I'm telling us, telling you, that we don't know when he does. There's no way to know when he is judging us. The first reality is this, that it is almost impossible, and I could probably take out the almost. I'm mitigating there, yes? It is impossible to determine when God is judging you and when he is not. There are times in the Old Testament when we are told that God is bringing difficulty because of judgment against a wicked people, a wicked group. Whether that was Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, whether that's Hezekiah later in the book of uh, 2 Kings because of his pride for showing the Babylonians his wealth. And there are times in the Bible when we are told that people are suffering difficulty and that it is not because of their sin. Famously, Job, a man who loses his, all of his family except his wife who curses him, and all of his property and all of his livestock, we are told that he did not sin, even though his very closest friends believed that there was no other, there was no other uh, answer to why Job is suffering other than his sin. And yet we're told that he, is, he didn't. In the book of John, the gospel, in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a town, and the disciples see a blind man who is blind, and they must have known this uh, because they knew of this man's reputation from birth. And so the disciples turn to Jesus and say, why is this man blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? But you see in the question of the disciples is the assumption that somebody sinned and this man's blindness is a result of judgment. And what does Jesus say? John chapter 9. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this has happened. This has happened. You know? Because the world is broken. That's my interpretation. You can go and read that and come up to your own conclusions. That's how I see it. This has happened so that the works of God may be displayed. It doesn't say in the text that this happens so God's glory can be displayed. He doesn't cause bad things so he can fix them and look like a superhero. Uh, kind of like, uh, what is his name? That guy in the new Spider-Man movie. Um, this is off the top of my head, but um, something, Mysterio or something. Remember? Probably most of you don't. That's not the way God works. He doesn't cause fake cataclysms so that he can show up and be the hero. The world is broken, and Jesus unbreaks that. He fixes and mends that which is broken. We cannot tell when the difficulty we are facing is a difficulty of judgment or when it is not. Without an inspired, omniscient narrator or Jesus himself telling us whether our difficulties are because of judgment against sin or not, it is impossible to tell. And it is a complete waste of time and energy to try to discern it. A complete waste of time and energy. And yet, 
I have heard countless times where preachers and Christians proclaim that the latest difficulty has come about because God has grown tired of our sin and is unwilling to take it any longer. This kind of rhetoric is always unhelpful. If you see sin in your life during times of judgment, do you know what you should do? Confess it and repent of it. If when you are going through difficulty, you can see areas in your life where you have sinned, then confess your sins and repent of your sins. If you see during times of difficulty, sin in your brother or sister, your your fellow human being who you love, then in the spirit of love and gentleness, if you have the relation with them, warn them so that they may take the path of life and not the path of death. Don't do this to random strangers. It's weird, right? And if you see our culture is sinful, then you are seeing something that has existed since the dawn of humanity, ever since the first sin in Adam and Eve. Things are not worse today than they were before. We are not progressively getting worse. It's been bad for a long time. A long time. Any study of history would show you this. It is arrogant and ignorant to proclaim that you know, that you know when the sins of man have become too much for the mind of God. If Jesus himself told his followers that he does not know the day or the hour of his return, When God will send him. I I can only assume, this is in Matthew 24, verse 36. I can only assume that when Jesus says this, that he is uh, intentionally self-limiting his knowledge. But if Jesus himself does not know the day or the hour, then neither do we. Neither do we. We do not know when it will be too much for God. And in fact, I don't even think of God like that. We do not know when God will return to fully and finally separate the realities of good and evil, of dark and light. We don't. And so don't pretend like you do. And even though I'm online, I seem pretty intense about this. I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm trying to warn you. Do not do it. It is bad for your soul. Do not do it. We do not know when. It is impossible to tell. But second, second, I want to speak into why God does judge us. And when we start proclaiming judgment on the street corners or against our friends on Facebook or against our culture on Facebook, we misunderstand the entire reason that judgment exists. So why does God judge He doesn't judge us to give us a spanking and make us feel bad. He doesn't. He judges us so that our hearts might be softened and so that we might confess our sins and repent of them so that we can move in the direction of life instead of death. To soften our hearts so that we will repent of our sins and move in a direction of life instead of death. And so any and every time you face difficulty, self-assess. And if there is sin in your life, confess and repent of it. And second, Jesus or God brings judgment because there will come a time 
There will come a time when he will put a final and forever end to evil so that evil will not reign and destroy life, right? This is the very heart of a life sentence that we would give somebody who we would try to, uh, through um, any means possible, uh, restore that person so that they come, come back into society after their crimes, right? But eventually the court system and our government realizes they cannot be rehabilitated, and so we give a life sentence to stop the perpetuation of evil. But if we heed the warning of the first, the judgment of the first, when judgment and difficulty arises, if we heed the warning and confess our sins, we need not worry about the second reason that judgment exists. Does this make sense? We need not worry about it. If we listen to the first purpose of God's judgment to soften our hearts, to cause us to confess and repent, then we can avoid the second purpose of God's judgment, to put an end to evil, even the evil in our own hearts. But notice, and here I'll try to soften my tone, notice that God does not hold our sins against us who confess and repent them. He does not punish us again and again for the sins that we have confessed and repented of. He does not. I have known individuals who've committed a sin in their past and they believe that every bad thing they do is a result of that sin. But this is not in the nature of God. Hear the language of the psalmist in Psalm 103, and this has become my favorite psalm. He does not hold our sins against us. Listen to the words. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far, has he removed our transgressions from us? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, and they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness is with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and obey his precepts. That's the psalmist, but hear the words of the Apostle John, who tells us very much the same, way, same thing in a much more succinct way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not the activity of a God who longs to judge, but a God who longs to restore. A God who longs to restore. And so this morning, if we can't assume that difficulty arises because of God's judgment, and we cannot, not saying it doesn't, and if you feel like it has in your own life personally, then repent. Do not interpret the signs of the time. And if you see sin in your brother, gently, gently, and with love, seek to restore them. But if we cannot assume that difficulty arises because of judgment, then the question this morning is, why does difficulty arise? And the answer is so plain and simple and even obvious. We experience difficulty because the world is broken. 
We experience difficulty because the world is broken. We experience difficulty because in this present world, the darkness is coexisting and commingling with the light. We experience difficulty because good and evil coexist in conflict. Jesus, in one of his well-known parables, and I've come to learn it's Daniel Nava's favorite portion of scripture, so a shout out to Daniel, who I'm not seeing this morning, who I normally would see. In one of Jesus' famous parables, called the parable of the weeds, he explains this dynamic of the world being broken. And listen to what he says. So Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted to uh, informed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to the owner and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked, Do you want us to go and pull them up? The, the, the owner said, No, because while you, while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Then Jesus left the crowd, and he went into a house, and his disciples came to him and said, Could you explain to us that parable about the weeds and the wheat? You know, this is nice. Every so often with one of Jesus' parables, he gives a further explanation about what it means. Because sometimes the parables don't make things more clear. They make them a little bit more confusing. Yes? And here Jesus says, yes, I will. I will tell you the answer to the parable of the weeds. And here it is. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then, and then, the righteousness of God will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. For whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Why is there difficulty in this world? Because the weeds are amongst the wheat, and we do not know how to tell the difference, right? And if we get about the business of trying to pluck out weeds, we are directly disobeying what Jesus tells us. And what does he tell us? To live in this world among the weeds and to restore what is broken. Our job is not to pluck weeds, to proclaim judgment, and to meet it out. Our job is to live in this world and to restore what is broken, to bring light in the darkness. And so this morning, as we move towards prayer in just a moment, our application is that as we face these times, as we interact with darkness, in difficulty. We are to remember that our job as followers of Jesus is to restore what is broken in this world. 
We know that this is our job because we are meant to follow in the footsteps of Jesus where everywhere he went, what was wrong with this world was undone. We are meant to go into the dark areas of our world and to shine light. To be followers of Jesus means that we are always trying to be a part of creating a world that looks more like the world will be when Jesus returns. For the Jesus follower recognizes that the world is broken and that God's will is not currently done on earth as it is in heaven. But the follower of Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer and says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our sins even as we forgive others. Forgive our sins even as we forgive others. Do you see there that there's nothing about judgment in us meeting it out, us giving it away? It is about us forgiving. It is about us loving. It is about us restoring. And so the Jesus-centered person will follow Jesus and will always strive to live a life of holiness so that they are not bringing greater levels of darkness into this world, so that they are not bringing greater levels of brokenness. But it will also mean that the follower of Jesus will be all about the business of healing what is broken. The act of entering into the broken areas of our world to extend the light of Jesus is an end in itself, and it is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. For the Jesus follower extends this love with no strings attached. Looking for every opportunity to share the gospel, but as a person who never uses the gospel, (laughs) as a prerequisite for offering their love. For as Jesus interacted with the world, not everybody received him. There's this famous story in the Gospels about Jesus healing these lepers. And there were ten of them. And one of them came back and said, thank you. And he was a Samaritan. He wasn't even an Israelite, right? We do not control how people respond to the work of God, of healing what is broken. But we are meant to do that work all the same. Do not waste your time interpreting the signs of the times. Do not waste your energy giving out proclamations of judgment. Use your time to introspectively ask yourself, what is broken within me? And then confess and repent of it. And use your time as a follower of Jesus to ask, Dear Jesus, would you please use me to help restore what is broken? And this morning as we go to prayer, um, and during this time when we would normally do communion, this is the prayer prompts that I want to give you this morning. Uh, I want us to first, this morning as we go to prayer, in just a moment I'll give you a time of silence so that you can pray in your homes. I want you to first ask, Jesus, restore what is broken within me. This is a prayer of humility that God will not refuse to answer. And so this morning, in the, in the maybe silence of your own homes, probably not if you have kids, would you pray? Not about, your, not about the others, not about anyone else, but would you pray, Jesus, would you restore what is broken within me, knowing that God is slow to anger, quick to love, And he wants to forgive and restore. Jesus, 
Restore what is broken within me. Would you pray with me? And would you pray with me second? Jesus, use me to restore what is broken in this world. As followers of Jesus, it never, ever stays internal. We never are healed so that we might just be alone. We are healed so that we might use, be used to heal. And so I ask that you would pray with me. Jesus, use me to restore what is broken in this world. Amen.